Happy Sabbath, church. Good to see you all here. It's good to be seen. And today we will be in um, Matthew chapter 3. But today, as I was trying to really uh, get this message together, um, I came to the conclusion that we're really going to have to do a Bible study today. Is that okay? Can we can we do a Bible study today? Okay, so we're going to do uh, we're going to be in Matthew. We're going to be um, also uh, in uh, so many places. Acts chapter five, John, Genesis. We we when it might be a good idea to simply just write some of these verses down as they go rather quickly through some of them. Um. <clears throat> As he's already read, well, I'll go ahead and read here again, Matthew chapter 3. It says, I'm going to start here again at verse 16. It says, when he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Let's pray. God in heaven, today we um, come to you, Lord, and we ask for a blessing from heaven, not a blessing we deserve or entitled to, God, but because of your loving character and your desire for us to know you more, I ask and pray today, God, for the guidance of your Holy Spirit, both as I preach and as each one is uh, listening and receiving the word today, Uh, We ask and pray, God, that you bring this message home. May it encourage and uplift us. uh, Help us to see Jesus. Help us to uh, see the Holy Spirit. And help us, God, to just fellowship with you today. God, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I remember, um, y'all know I like to tell my Japanese story. So here comes another one, okay? I was traveling from... Uh, Western Japan to Eastern Japan after my first or second year of being a student, uh, being a missionary. I was not a student at that time. I was, I had already graduated and I was on the Shinkansen. That's the bullet train maybe you've seen and, you know, on TV or ads or magazines or whatever, but they're really fast trains that are very smooth and they're always on time and they're very dependable. So I was on a bullet train on my way home to the Yokohama, Tokyo area from visiting Hiroshima. And while I was on the bullet train, um, I was sitting there, you know, and and I had my Bible. I was reading it, and uh, I put it in the pocket in front of me. And so you could see what book was there. If you could read English, you knew what it was. And so along the way, the hours that it took, uh, we stopped and picked some other people up, and two gentlemen sat next to me. They looked, um, obviously they were not Japanese. And so they sat down next to me, and I heard them speaking a language I didn't, I didn't quite understand. It wasn't English, it wasn't Japanese, it turned out to be Arabic. And so the gentleman who was sitting next to me, there's two of them, the one, there's three seats, the one sitting next to me, he said, and I was by the window, he said to, he looked at what, book I had there, and then he looked at me, and he said, uh, are you a Christian? In English, good English. I said, yeah, I'm a Christian. 
And so um, he introduces himself. He and his friend were from the nation of Turkey. They were Turkish. And they were uh, traveling through Japan. And they were Muslims. And so he was very interested in uh, my study of the Bible and me being a Christian. And so we started having a conversation about our faiths. So he was sharing a little bit with me about uh, what it means to be a Muslim and, and what Muslims believe. And I was sharing a little bit with him about what it means to be a Christian and what Christians believe. And so come to find out that Adventist and Muslims have quite a bit in common. Did you know that? Um, not eating unclean meats, or drinking alcohol, those kind of things that they often uh, associate with Christianity with Catholic Christianity, but with Christianity. And so, um, so then we got to the, the topic of Jesus. And so, of course, I knew that they didn't believe the same thing that we do about Jesus, but we began sharing with each other um, some, some of what we believe about Jesus. And so Muslims do not believe that Jesus is the Son of God. They believe that Jesus was a prophet. They believe in Jesus, but not the way the Bible reveals Jesus. So they believe that Jesus is a prophet. He's a good prophet. And they even believe that Jesus is coming back again. Didn't you know that? They believe that Jesus, there's a, there's a certain gate in Palestine where Jesus is going to come back. And when Jesus returns, then that will usher in the new kingdom. Very interesting. And so we talked more about Jesus, and um, I I quoted this scripture from John uh, chapter 14, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. So this started a very interesting conversation about who Jesus really was. And so as he started sharing a little bit what what he believed, and I started sharing a little bit about what I believed, and I I began to come to the realization that these are no two common, you know, travelers. I I was almost convinced that they were missionaries of some sort. And so uh, they probably thought, aha, we, you know, we have an opportunity here. And so... um, I don't know if I ever told them I went to school to be a pastor and all these other things, but they were quite surprised by my knowledge of the Bible and what I knew about Islam as well, too. And so it, it finally came to the point where we had to very kindly and respect. These men were very kind and, and respectful, and, uh, and uh, I felt very comfortable talking to them. We never argued, but we kindly agreed to disagree about Jesus because I knew that Jesus was the Son of God, but they could not accept that Jesus was the Son of God. Because what are the implications of that? If if that throws their whole theology off, off course, if Jesus is the Son of God, then he's not just a prophet. He's not just a good man. He's not just some kind of holy man. That means that he is equal with God. Jesus uh, in, in their thinking, is not as elevated as he is in our understanding of the Bible, of who Jesus really is. So we agreed to respectfully disagree and then, you know, went on and talked about some other things. But you see, who Jesus is 
And who he really is, as it is revealed in the Bible, is very, very important, isn't it? Who do you say that Jesus is? Jesus actually asked his disciples this question in Matthew chapter 16. Who do you say that I am? And it raises the question of not only who is Jesus, but who is God? What do we believe about God? What does the Bible teach about the divinity of Christ and the position of Christ and who God is as revealed in Scripture? In this passage today, in Matthew chapter 3, this is often quoted as one of the strongest evidences that we see for our belief in the Trinity. One God in three persons. This is also something that Muslims cannot wrap around their minds and they often try to challenge Christians about. But I want to look at our passage today. And as I look at our passage today, um, I want to note a few things. And actually what I'm going to do, and I was really wrestling of how to do this, but I want to go backwards. I want to start at verse 17 and go up to verse 16. Is that okay? In this passage, we see all three members of the Godhead being present at the beginning of of the ministry of Jesus. And actually, it's in all three synoptic Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They all record the same story. Jesus is being baptized. As he comes out of the water, then they see the Spirit of God coming down in the form of a dove, alighting upon him. And they they hear the voice of God from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son. All three of them record this very important story. And this is important because as Jesus is beginning his ministry, the gospel writers will show how Jesus came to save mankind and reveal the character of God. So we see here, and don't miss this, that all three members of the Godhead are fully present and active to accomplish the plan of salvation. It's not like God the Father simply said to Jesus as he was leaving heaven and coming to be in the womb of Mary, good luck, I hope all that goes well, I will be watching and orchestrating things from heaven. No. The Bible says that the heavens were opened and they could hear the voice of God. Now, not everyone heard it, but most did. They heard the voice of God. He was present. The Holy Spirit was also present. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were all busy in the work of redemption, in the work of saving mankind, in the work of revealing the character of God. And they are busy today as well. But what does it mean that God is fully present? Well, I'll actually uh, like to look here at our passage again backward. I'd like to start from verse 17 and notice something interesting. It says that a voice came from heaven, which had just been opened up. Now, where did the voice come from? Where does the Bible say the voice came from? It came from heaven, right? And where is Jesus in this passage? He's on the earth, right? So this cannot be the voice of Jesus talking to himself. So, 
God the Father is the one who is speaking. He's not talking to himself. He's talking about his son. He's talking uh, about Jesus. There are two distinct persons here in verse 17, aren't there? Is that what the text says? Now, I want to quickly say that no one in Christian history has ever debated that God the Father is fully 100% divine. That he is the creator, that he is all-powerful, that he is eternal, all-knowing, and in every way, God. Isaiah 44 and 6 says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no God. And if you challenge that, then you're probably an atheist or an agnostic and not a Christian or a believer in the Bible. So we all agree, God the Father, from eternity past, sitting on his throne, is fully divine and in every way God. This has not been challenged in Christian history, but where some people today in in Christianity are, are beginning to become confused are the divinity, the full divinity of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. Now, if you study Christian history, you can look at all the books and all the theologies and and all the the different uh, great uh, theological minds that have, have written on this subject. But today, what I would like to do is just look at the Bible. Can we do that? Just look at some scriptures today. So as we're going backwards here from the bottom up, I would like to look at the next part of this passage, the second part of verse 16, where it says here, And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. This is is the Holy Spirit coming upon Jesus and anointing him for his ministry. Now, the Bible says, It is the Spirit of who? The Spirit of God. This is none other than the Holy Spirit, whom we often call the third person of the Trinity. So the question is, is the Holy Spirit also fully God? Is he a person or is he a force? I remember that when I was pastoring in Marshall Church and my wife and I were visiting with a a kind woman um, who came out of what I believe was a worldwide church of God um, by Armstrong. I think that's who the leader of the church was. And they were also Sabbath keepers. So uh, when the worldwide church of God kind of broke up, uh, then they would go out and start looking, uh, some of those who left that church would go out and start looking for... um, for Sabbath-keeping churches. Of course, there's not many around except for Seventh-day Adventists. And so she came and we visited with her and talked about her becoming a member and whatnot. And I remember her telling me this one time that, that she did not believe that Jesus was fully God. She believed that he was a, like a kind of a force. So I was thinking in my mind, First thing that came to my mind was like Star Wars or something like that, you know? Something out of a movie. I, I, it's, it's kind of funny. I don't mean to be, you know, comical or make fun, but I was, how do you get that out of the scriptures? 
I was thinking to the only other place I could think of were, were the movies. That's the only place. How did how do we come to that conclusion from Scripture? Now I didn't get into some uh, major debate or argument with her, and. Uh, what I would like to do now is just look at some scriptures. What does the Bible actually say? So turn with me, if you will, and look at Acts chapter 5. We'll just look at a few of some of the strongest uh, passages in the scripture. We, you know, as I was studying for this week, I had such a challenge. How do I actually present this without turning it into a 90-minute class on the Trinity? Oh, it was challenging. And so I just prayed earnestly that God would lead me, in a, and I just decided we'll just look at a few passages. Acts chapter 5, Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, it says, this is the beginning, the early church, as they're, they're, immer- they're coming to, uh, to this place where God has led them. It says, but a certain man named Ananias, with Sapphira his wife, sold a possession, and he kept back part of the proceeds his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to who? The Holy Spirit. And came back part of the price of the land for yourself. So what has happened is they see all these other um, you know, wealthy people or Whoever has land, they're selling their land and they're bringing it to the apostles and laying it at their feet. And they're like, oh, this is wonderful. Look at these people, the sacrifice that they're making. And so Ananias and Sapphira said, hey, we got to get on, in on this too. And they go sell their land, you know, for $100,000. And they come to the apostles and they say, we sold our land for $70,000. And we just want to give you the money. Oh, isn't this wonderful? They've given everything. So they were lying about what they had actually received for it. And Peter, he, um, he confronts them about this and says that they are lying to the Holy Spirit. Verse 4, while it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why did you just tell us the truth? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to who? But to God, they lied to God. The Holy Spirit knew what was going on because God knows all things. God is ever present. He is everywhere and he knows all things. And so maybe they thought they were pulling the wool over the eyes of the apostles. But God, the Holy Spirit, tapped Peter on the shoulder and said, this is, this is, not, this is not what's really going on. And he revealed to Peter what was really going on. So we see here that Peter himself calls the Holy Spirit God. How can a force be lied to? Only a person can be lied to. And there's many other passages in the Bible. I, I think of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 where it it talks about knowing the deep things of God. Let's turn very quickly to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 9. Quickly here it says, But as it is written, Eye has not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man, 
the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his spirit. For the spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of man except for the spirit of man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. So basically what he's saying is in order to understand the things of man, you have to be a man. You have to be like a man. You have to have his feelings. You have to have his experiences. You have to be a man to understand the things of man. And he says, who can know the deep things of God except the spirit of God? Now, if the Holy Spirit can understand the deep things of God, if the Holy Spirit can understand things that limited human beings and limited angels cannot understand, we have to come to one conclusion about the person of the Holy Spirit, that he is indeed divine. We cannot understand fully and completely the deep things of God, neither can an angel because they are created beings. But the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit knows. And the Holy Spirit wants to reveal to us what we are capable of understanding. And isn't it wonderful that uh, some people feel so separated, they feel so distant from God, they feel so, uh, so uh, away from God, God in his Holy Spirit, he wants to reveal himself to us as much as we can understand. And he wants to be present with us. Amen? Amen. John chapter 3 verses 5 through 8. We're we're not going to read it because of the sake of time. But also Jesus is talking to Nicodemus and he's telling Nicodemus, you have to be born not only of the water, but also born of of the Spirit. He's talking about the Spirit of God. We must be born again. We must be born of the Holy Spirit. And if if the Spirit of God is not in us, if the Spirit of God is not working in our lives, then there is no salvation. Only God can save a human soul. Only God can do that. We cannot save someone else. We cannot take somebody else's faith. We we cannot ride somebody else's coattail into the kingdom. We have to be saved ourselves. And that comes through the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to make a strong statement here. If anyone does not have the Spirit of God in their life, if they have not been born of the Spirit, then they are not saved. It does not matter what we have done in the church or, or, or what we've done for the church or give the church, etc., etc. We need a revival of the Spirit of God. I'm not talking about some charismatic speaking in tongues, tongues or experiencing some strange thing. I'm talking about the conviction, the belief that you are a sinner and need God's forgiveness and a new life that only the Spirit can bring. And from that moment on, the Spirit of God quietly, often quietly, and persistently guides and leads in our lives. From now, throughout all eternity. 
Jesus was always guided by the Spirit of God, and we should be too. And we see that this is what is happening at the baptism of Jesus. The Holy Spirit is present then and now for the redemption of man. Now, I want to take a look, if I can, at the final part of our passage here, Matthew chapter 3 and verse 16. Now, God does something very interesting at the baptism of Jesus. He said something here, very interesting, straight out of the gates at the beginning of the gospel. God, the father from heaven, makes a very strong statement. God, the father, affirms that Jesus Christ is his son. He doesn't send somebody else to do it. He doesn't send an angel or another prophet God the Father speaks from heaven and affirms that Jesus Christ is his Son. Now think about what the implications of that actually mean. Now, if a woman is pregnant, please excuse this illustration, but I'm trying to make a point. If a woman is pregnant for some months, and goes into the labor, and goes to the hospital, and labors in birth pains for hours and hours, and the doctors and the nurses are, are, are standing around that woman. And she gives birth, and all of a sudden, this cute, beautiful little puppy comes out. <laughs> Would you think that that's rather strange? Yes. <laughs> what do you expect to come from this human being. Another human being. A baby, right? So think about the implications. If God, the Father in heaven, is saying, this is my son, do you think they're going to be alike? Do you think they're going to be the same in nature? Do you think they're going to be the same in every way possible? that he can be called God. There's very strong implications here. Now, I wish I had time to go through all the, you know, objections to Jesus being the Son of God, but we don't have time. Again, I would just like to affirm what the Bible says by looking at some scriptures here. John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. We all know this, I'm sure, very well. This is actually one of the first verses I taught my son um, when we were doing scripture memorization. John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was what? God. Now, this is such a strong statement. There, there are some cults, some religions that actually manipulate and they change the wording here because there's no escaping what this implies if you read it just as it says. There are some uh, uh, Bibles out there that actually translate this as little g. God was, the word was a God or, or God was was something less than God. 
There are actually cults out there that teach and believe that. And if you encounter them, I strongly recommend to just go the other way. Be polite, be nice, but there's no need to listen to that. It says in verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. Now, imagine with me, if you will, that we had a time capsule. We could travel back in time as far as we wanted to go. And we get in our time capsule and we travel all the way back to the first century and we see the baptism of Jesus and he's being baptized and he comes up out of the water and we will see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Praise God. And we get back in our time capsule and we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1 and 2. And we get out of our time capsule. Who are we going to see at the very beginning? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And we get back in our time capsule and say, how far back can this thing go? All the way back to eternity past. And we get out of our capsule and we will see God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. As far back as one can go, we will see God fully present, and active in his created universe. Jesus is 100% fully, completely God. He is as divine as the Father. He is as divine as the Father. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 and 8. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 and 8. I love this passage. This is a great devotional passage that I highly recommend uh, from time to time that you use in your devotion. Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 5, it says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal to, with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. God the Son. became a man. He humbled himself. From the highest place in heaven, he came to the lowest place on earth, and he took the form of a servant. Now, think about that for a minute. What does that mean for us as people? How should we act What should our attitude be? What kind of mindset should we have? If Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, God, who deserves all the worship and all the praise and all the accolades, if he came to be a man and he came to be a servant to others, even to the point of washing the feet of his disciples, what kind of attitude should we have? who are created beings made from the dust of the earth. 
What does that, what, what are the implications of that for us? We shouldn't have any ounce of pride or selfishness or, or self-righteousness or, or have any kind of, uh, of uh, trying to claim that we are greater than anyone else. If Jesus did this, what should, I, what should our attitude be? There's another story in the Bible when one of Jesus' close friends, his name is Lazarus, he was close to death and some people came to Jesus and they said, your friend Lazarus is about to die. And Jesus told them that this death is not going to be, uh, that this is not going to lead to death but to the glory of God. And so to much to their surprise, Lazarus actually died. And so Jesus and his disciples, they go to where Lazarus was at in Bethany. And Lazarus' sister, Martha, she's grieving. This is right after the death of Lazarus. She's grieving and she comes to Jesus and she says, this is John, this is John chapter 11. And she says, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. If you would have been here, Jesus, if you would have done this, my brother would not have died. Well, why didn't you come? And so they have a conversation, and he tells her that, that, that his, her brother would rise again. And so Martha answered and said, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Her theology was correct. But I want to read this statement here from Desire of Ages, page 530, when she said that, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Ellen White says, Still seeking to give a true direction to her faith, Jesus declared in John chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. She goes on to say this, In Christ is life, original, unborrowed, and underived. In Christ is life, original, unborrowed, underived. He that hath the Son hath life. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 12. And she goes on to say that the divinity of Christ is the believer's assurance of eternal life. Life. The divinity of Christ is the believer's assurance of eternal life. Church, what that means is that when we surrender all to Jesus, when we believe in Him, when we say, He is my Savior, that we are not putting our faith in a demi God, a half God. Jesus is not 90% God or 99% God, but we are putting our faith in God himself. From eternity past, we can can rest our life, our salvation, our whole being in the person of Jesus Christ. Now I'm here to affirm, I want to remind us of a very important truth that we believe as Christians and Adventists that we believe in one God in three persons, 
Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. The Trinity. Now, there, there's a problem with trying to fully understand the nature of God. And that is that we are limited, finite human beings trying to understand an eternal, divine, all-knowing, all-powerful, almighty God. How can one plus one plus one equal one? I don't know. But in all the texts that we read here, we didn't read God's plural, but we read God's singular. James chapter 2 and verse 19 says that you believe in one God. You do well. Even the demons believe that. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 4 says that there is only one God. Amen? Amen. This is simply what the Bible teaches, and we affirm it. How can our limited minds understand everything about the nature of God? I think we'll have all eternity to figure that out. Amen? Amen? And I used to be kind of timid or afraid to actually even talk about this issue with other people because I used to think, how am I going to explain this? And the truth is, we don't try to explain it. We just see what's written in Scripture and take it by faith for what it is. But then I came to this another conclusion that actually excites me about this truth. And that's that we should be rejoicing in the fact that we serve a God who is so great and so big and so majestic that we are going to be learning about him throughout all eternity. This same infinite, all-powerful, all-knowing God wants to be present in your daily life and in mine. He wants to have communion with each and every one of that, uh, each and every one of us. Amen. And he does that, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. He's present in the story here in Matthew chapter 3 in the process of salvation. And he's present in our lives as well too. May God bless you and happy Sabbath. Father in heaven, we thank you, God, for your holy word. Uh, We thank you, God, for the way that you reveal yourself to us in scripture. May we sense your presence with us every day. We ask for your blessing now as we dismiss upon each one today. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.